You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, my name is Natasha Bajma. I'm the director of the Converging Risks Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. I'm thrilled to host the first episode of On the Verge. CSR staff and associates will be talking to experts about climate change, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, global pandemics, artificial intelligence, and so much more. And you're saying, well, that's a lot of scary stuff, right? Obviously, we have to talk about the existential risks and the challenges in addressing them, but we're also going to talk about how to solve them today with practical solutions. So we're upbeat about our future on this podcast. You'll occasionally hear my voice, but you'll also hear the voices of many others at CSR as well. I hope you subscribe to the podcast today and follow our work. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We're kicking off the podcast today with a conversation about arms control. At the Jan Nolan Center and Institute at CSR, one of our major projects is reimagining arms control. To start things off, I talked to Andy Weber, a senior fellow at CSR, and John Gower, a senior advisor at CSR, about some of their ideas. Let's go to the interview. Today, I'm speaking to Andy Weber and John Gower about the future of arms control. Andy is a senior fellow at the Council on Strategic Risks. He is the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs, and has spent decades working to reduce the risk of nuclear war. Rear Admiral John Gower is a senior advisor at the Council on Strategic Risks. Until his retirement in 2014, he was the Assistant Chief of Defense Staff in the UK's Ministry of Defense. As part of this, he was responsible for all aspects of arms control and counterproliferation. Andy, John, welcome to On the Verge. Thank you, Natasha. So one of the major research directions of the Jan Nolan Center on Strategic Weapons at CSR is the reimagining of arms control. But before we discuss some of your ideas on how to do this, I'm wondering if you can help the audience understand what is arms control and how have we done it in the past? Sure. So arms control is about improving our national security and also uh, mutual security. Um, It's a tool for preventing arms racing, which we experienced during the Cold War, but also to increase stability and reduce the risk of nuclear war. That's the heart and soul of arms control. I was gonna say it's also about um, increasing confidence and mutual trust between the nations who may have other adversarial positions on on a lot of things. And it covers the spectrum of arms from conventional all the way up to nuclear. Um, And we have been engaged in strong arms control since before the end of the Cold War until quite recently, I mark the high watermark of arms control at around 2012. And so we're talking about reimagining arms control. So how did we do things in the past? What are the the basic parameters of arms control in the past? 
Well, for nuclear arms control, I think we have to go back a little bit to, to our roots. Um, Reagan and Gorbachev, um, in negotiating the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, really um, captured the most important aspect, which is reducing the risk. They got rid of these lesser, shorter range systems with, with very uh, fast uh, flight times to Moscow and Europe. And in doing so, they eliminated entire classes of the most dangerous types of nuclear weapons. And I think it's important to, to join to that the uh, non-proliferation aspects of the various treaties that actually slightly predated that activity and set some of the political groundwork which made those thought processes possible when the Cold War had matured to a point where those two leaders could take a uh, could take a step forward. And on the basis of the strategic arms control uh, at the nuclear end, uh, confidence was built and relationships were built, which then allowed NATO and the Warsaw Pact, then NATO and Russia, to have a very broad range of conventional arms control, which underpinned and stabilised relationships such that further nuclear arms control uh, leading to the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty um, was able, and, and bringing all of these together was a very positive thing. Unfortunately, we're now in a position where much of that architecture is crumbling. It resembles more the Roman Forum today than, a, uh, than, a, than, a, than an edifice you would want to, to live in. So I think there is that, you know, we have a long way to go to even to get back to where we were 10 years ago. So that's a great segue to what are the current challenges facing arms control today? Well, I'll, I'll well, pick up on this one and I would just say simply it's lack of trust. What, is, what has happened is that uh, the combination of ideological challenge to the concept of arms control, which has happened on both sides of the Atlantic superpowers in Russia and the US, um, has... A, in common with, and as part of that, has been a, a lack of trust in a whole slew of areas to do with um, corruption, political, uh, everything from doping in the Olympics to interference with elections. We're at a nadir of trust. And what that has completely eroded is the basis for uh, something as complicated and as trust-bearing as arms control. And so we have seen the almost complete erosion of uh, uh, nuclear arms control, except one thing at the strategic level. And most of our conventional arms control is, if not dead, pretty moribund. Yeah, I would just add that in the last four years of Donald Trump, um, the so-called deal maker, he didn't negotiate a single deal. He just destroyed deals right and left. And, and we're left with only one hanging by a thread, which is the New START Treaty, which, thank goodness, uh, Biden won the election and is going to extend for a period of five years, which is allowed uh, by the treaty, as long as the Russian and American presidents agree. But now we have to, to really rebuild uh, from scratch and it's more complicated. It's not just Russia and the United States anymore. We have other countries that we need to draw into this critical process. And I think the other, the other significant change is that the, the balance of danger and risk has changed. So actually, whilst the focus is on quite rightly renewing START and looking at regenerating strategic 
reductions or strategic arms control, the greatest risk comes from less than strategic weapons, weapons that have grown in this period, either because they've been produced in conflict with the uh, treaties like the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, or because they weren't covered by it. Um, and we're now in a position where the risk, the stability risk and the risk to um, the nuclear taboo being maintained, in my view, is stronger from uh, not only these lower end nuclear weapons, but their interface and entanglement with technologies outside the nuclear sphere, high end conventional weapons, uh, and, other, and other factors which we can go into. But it means perhaps that the, the wolves nearest the arms control sled are in fact not those that took Rail and Gorbachev to the table um, when we started this conversation. So that's a great segue to how does arms control need to change in the future? What is your vision for reimagining arms control? Well, first of all, these, these low yield nuclear weapons, these more usable nuclear weapons, I think they're the most dangerous indeed because they are more usable. So I think that arms control needs to focus on not just the numbers of nuclear weapons that each size each side has, but those types that are the most dangerous because they're the most likely to be used initially, the first nuclear weapons used. And then of course that could escalate out of hand to an Armageddon. So we need to do what Reagan and Gorbachev did and go after those classes of nuclear weapons that have these characteristics that make them the most dangerous. For example, some nuclear weapons are on delivery platforms like cruise missiles that carry conventional warheads as well as nuclear warheads. And the ability to confuse your adversary with, with those so your adversary might think that you're sending a nuclear weapon his way when you're actually sending a conventional weapon. And that's a, a recipe for unintended disaster. And I think the, uh, the, the, there, is, there is this physical side of arms control, but we have also lost the, um, the mental, the, the, the moral side of arms control from our lexicon. And one of the strongest uh, contributions that the previous president and his administration made was a thrust to reduce the salience of nuclear weapons in weapon states security strategies, to remove them from the front and center pivotal point of their strategy. And I'm afraid that what I have seen uh, in the last four to six years, um, and it's not exclusively um, the fault of this president, although he has accelerated it, it's also the position that Russia, to a certain extent, and other countries have taken, and the inability of the previous president to push through what he really wanted to do through the democratic process in the US. But we need first, and as part of any formal new arms control, to rebuild a concept of restraint and reassurance and reduction in the willingness and eagerness to not only use weapons really and physically, but to use them rhetorically in making your position as a country in the world. And I think there's a lot of responsibility issues that need to be addressed as part of a resumption of a new breed of arms control. 
So John, you mentioned um, trust being the major challenge. And um, I think Andy, you mentioned that, you know, arms control needs to move beyond Russia and the United States. How do we bring other countries into arms control? I'll just start. Well, it's, it's complicated, obviously, but, but there are ways we can do this. And I think um, our concept, um, one of our concepts is called cruise control. And that is focusing on a type of nuclear weapon um, nuclear armed cruise missiles that uh, not every country has. Um, for example, China has not deployed any nuclear armed cruise missiles. So while China can, can rightly say that there's no need today to engage in arms control with Russia and the United States, which each have many thousands of nuclear weapons, while China only has low hundreds of nuclear weapons, uh, if we change the conversation to types and focus on those most dangerous and destabilizing types, then China could agree to not pursuing that particular type of nuclear weapon to forego them. And so I think these are the kinds of concepts that we need to explore um, in uh, formal and informal discussions with, uh, with allies and with uh, adversaries. I think, and it's important in the cruise missile sense to also to understand the UK does not deploy nuclear cruise missiles and would join that uh, particular initiative in a heartbeat, um, provided, of course, that the United States was advocating it as well. I mean, we are, the UK is, I say we, now I'm no longer in government, the UK is pretty symbiotic with the US on nuclear weapons, but it just fields fewer and different types. But where the other states can contribute directly, even though there is no either numerical or classification, uh, is in this um, generation of a new sense of responsibility, not, not a responsibility that, um, that is part of the underpinning of a, of a mantra that says we can keep these weapons forever because it's we've shown ourselves to be responsible for owners and users. But that while we are owners and users, there are a, there is a more responsible path to demonstrate not only to potential adversaries and allies, but also to the non-nuclear weapon states, um, which is the majority of states in the world, um, that there is a there is an upward trajectory, a positive trajectory, which will build this groundswell of trust when others see that you are doing it as well, which provides the foundation upon which more concrete measures can. Uh, can be built. And I, I think it's worth mentioning here because listeners might want to, to grab the document that the Council on Strategic Risks, I worked in and with the team last year to produce a code of responsible nuclear conduct, which was designed to set a series of 10 very simple affirmations that a nuclear weapon state could sign up to, uh, most of which you could infer from what they say publicly but by making these particular affirmations, it would show a change in trajectory in rhetoric and in an intent and would set a foundation for uh, the kind of agreements which are necessary uh, to attack and remove the most hazardous weapons, as Andy says, dual uh, capable weapons, including and most importantly, nuclear armed cruise missiles. Just to close things out, um, if you were to recommend one step to reboot arms control, to jumpstart the agenda, um, beyond, of course, renewing New START, which I think is obvious, what would you propose as the first step? 
Well, I, I would propose a, a rather simple step that I think is, is, is quite doable. And that would be to cap and then eliminate uh, sea launch cruise missiles. Um, why do I think these are the most dangerous type of, of, uh, of nuclear weapon? Because when I worked as director of the Nuclear Weapons Council, um, the thing that we worried most about was a sea launch cruise missile being launched in a, in a surprise attack off the coast of, of the Atlantic, uh, off the coast of Washington and decapitating our government. Um, so that, that's definitely the most dangerous uh, class or type of, of nuclear weapon. And the United States got rid of it for that reason. Uh, first, uh, George Bush 43 got, took it off our boats and President Obama retired them. And Trump has tried to revive them and started a new development program but we don't need them. And I think we have an opportunity perhaps with the so-called uh, permanent five, the, uh, uh, on the UN Security Council, the, the nuclear weapons holders, um, the only countries in that group of five that have sea launch cruise missiles are the United States is developing a new one and, and Russia, uh, Russia has them, but the United Kingdom, France and China do not have sea launch cruise missiles. So that would be a great place to start. I agree. And it's worth noting that when we in the United Kingdom looked at alternatives to Trident uh, a few years ago, uh, we deliberately excluded, although we did look in detail at sea launch cruise missiles, we excluded them for all the reasons that we've covered here and all the reasons why uh, President Bush, first President Bush and President Obama um, made their uh, made the choices that uh, that Andy's just covered, and I think it would also that moratorium on those that don't have it and removal of those that do is a very easy starting point for the remainder of the cruise missiles, because once you once you have accepted that you don't need them for national security, which is essentially the sticking point between those who advocate for them and those of us who believe they are not essential, um, then you very quickly can unravel the other programs. And therefore, uh, because there's only two nuclear weapon states that have them of the P5, I would, I would agree with that. And in doing that, you could also cover a whole load of other issues to do with declaring the, the policy, the declaratory policy that, um, that, that countries make with nuclear weapons you can remove some of the ambiguities and caveats that you have to put in there when you have weapons like sea launch cruise missiles, because if you, if you don't have these caveats, they become very difficult to use. So I think, I think these, these things would move in step. And so you'd see not only this retiring of a, of a, of a stability challenging system, but also work on the responsibility issues as well. And just to be clear, Natasha, this would only apply to um, sea launch cruise missiles with nuclear weapons on the tips, uh, not to uh, conventional sea launch cruise missiles. So I'm inferring from both of you that you're proposing a political declaration versus a negotiated treaty to start. Is that correct? I think that's where you have to start, but we could work towards a negotiated treaty with monitoring and verification. It's actually getting easier to verify nuclear arms control agreements with, with all of the new transparency afforded by um, open source 
imagery, um, social media, etc. It's harder in this world to keep secrets and to violate treaties. And the easiest things to verify, in fact, are sea-launched nuclear cruise missiles, because the platforms that carry them don't carry any other nuclear weapons. And so once you've got rid of the sea-launched nuclear cruise missiles, the verification process is outside of your corral of your nuclear weapons. And therefore, all the sensitivities that come with that, they're only sensitive if you're breaking the rules. Um, so it, it's actually probably the simplest verification that could be instituted. Well, this has been a very interesting starting discussion. So for the listeners, we're going to have a couple more discussions on uh, future arms control initiatives um, with both Andy and John. So thank you for this initial conversation. It was fascinating. Thank you, thank Natasha. You. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.